If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis. Today we're going to talk about the rapture. Okay? The word rapture, uh, and, and I'm going to have a lot to share with you today, but I'm going to need you to listen closely, okay? Uh, in the, especially in the beginning. And there will be a couple of what I call aha moments at the end. Uh, it, it'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Because you have to see and understand that when you start to parallel what God is doing when, when the world got evil and judgment came, it came by way of flood. But the book of Revelation tells us that the next one will be by way of fire. But the parallels between the two are pretty amazing to look at. And I'm looking forward to share those with you this morning. So what does the word rapture, what is the word rapture? The word rapture, the name rapture, it is just taken on that. The word rapture is not found in the Bible, uh, but similar parts to it is. Taken, being taken up, uh, catching away is what the word rapture means. And, uh, and so you'll see it, you'll see it in the picture. And it's the, it's the end times. If you understand, if you've ever seen the movies, uh, Left Behind series, those, those real popular books. It was fiction, obviously, all built around the concept, uh, fictional story around the truth of the rapture. And I don't have a problem with that, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. Fiction is wonderful as long as you don't make truth out of it, right? Uh, because there have been lots of Christian fiction that are really a lot of fun, like Pilgrim's Progress, right? And Chronicles of Narnia, and some of those that have been written of fiction. And so I don't have a problem with those things, but I do have a problem sometimes that some of the imagination of an author will make its way into the truth with the scripture and have anything to say about. But anyway, so, so I'm going to jump into this and we're going to, today is more, it's going to kind of be, and next week, we're going to kind of be in end times, uh, uh, looking at the end, waiting on Jesus's return. And what does it mean? And what does it look like? And what does this little story, really it's not even a story, it's a couple of verses, on a man by the name of Enoch. His name was Enoch. And in all of the Bible, there's only three or four verses about him. And, um, and yet within his life, there's so much to learn. I could have almost made this into two weeks just because of there's so much in it. So I want to go ahead and jump right into it so I know that we've got plenty of time. And number one, if you want to take down some notes. Now again, I need you to listen close up at the front and then you'll see some really cool things toward the end. Okay, the number one is I'm going to call it the times of Enoch's life. The times of Enoch's life. Obviously it was ancient times, goes way back. And it was a time, obviously, not long, uh, well, a few hundred years uh, after creation. And, and you're looking at and you're looking at a man by the name of Enoch, but the times in which he lived had already deteriorated into, into evil, right? Uh, there had already been a lot of problems. When you take a look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, we talk about Cain. It says that he went away from the presence of the Lord. So that means that, <clears throat> that obviously Cain did what he did. We talked about Cain and Abel last time. I was with you. And, and, Basically, Cain, you know, he basically went away from God's presence, lived in, you know, lived in Nod, which was east of Eden. But, but a whole lot of him 
was away from the Lord doing what he wanted to do. And so evil, sin began to produce a lot of incredible struggles. You can read down through it, Cain and, and the offsprings, he began to build cities and his offspring began to, begin technology increased. I mean, metallurgy, a lot of different things began to happen. It's pretty neat when you take a look at it. And he's building cities. And then when you take a look on that, Lamech, okay? Lamech was a guy who was a descendant, but this kind of just shares a little bit when you think of Lamech, about how bad it had gotten. In verse 23, and Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zola, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So arrogance, just it was descending quickly, right? It was just descending quickly. Into, into, just, into just evil. Um, you know, it was a similar time uh, to the time of Noah. We're going to talk about that next week. But it was a time where lifespans were huge. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't believe somebody could live 900 and some years. Well, if the atmosphere was different, um, when you think about the pre-flood, that is the, how the atmosphere and how basically just the, the ecosystem was pre-flood. Because when you take a look at the lifespans in the Bible, after the flood, they dive off the table by 75%. And then they just continue to go down until about what they are today. So something happened at the flood that caused lifespans to, to drop off the table. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. So it was at a time where people... They lived longer, but also it was a time of just real violence, right? Just real violence, wickedness, evil. In fact, we'll, we'll talk about this next week. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says is that God, God or the Lord looked down and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, so there's this deterioration. Um, technology boomed, right? Uh, but, but also the great struggle of, of violence and evil. And it got down to where the imaginations, that is, what somebody wanted was always, it was always evil. And so God's going to make a judgment here. A judgment, and and, um, and basically it comes from this time. So there's a there's a parallel of, you know, you read the rest of it, it says that God had even regretted that he'd created man, which is a pretty powerful statement. But then he goes on to talk about a judgment that was going to be a flood, and that's be, that'll be next week. But I just want you to, all I want you to see now is is a parallel that begins with Enoch, not Noah. It begins with Enoch. And, but Enoch is so rarely ever mentioned, uh, and you'll see why a little bit in just a minute. But, but number two, so number one are the times of Enoch's life. Number two is the testimony of Enoch's life. Now, he was known for something. 
And there's something important about him that you need to know. There isn't much, but what it does tell us is pretty amazing. Now, take a look at this. In chapter 5, verse 21, it says that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now, what a terrible name, right, Methuselah. I mean, how in the world, I mean, how in the world do you come up with a nickname for that? You ever go past two or three syllables, a, a name's tough. But, but, there's a, but see, it's not so much it's a common name, is that it was, it was what it meant. It meant, the, the name Methuselah means uh, when he's gone, it'll come, or he will usher it in. Um, basically, what his name means is that, is that when he dies, that's when it's going to come. So... Pretty much the day Methuselah was born, God, God had shared it, obviously, with Enoch, is that the clock started ticking. I think it's ticking now when you compare the two together. I mean, Lord only knows the times in which we live and the increasing violence and, the, and if you will, the basically sitting on a, on, a, on a razor's edge of anything that crazy happening. You know, so it's... it's it's an amazing parallel when you think on it. But anyway, going back to Enoch, Methuselah, therefore the clock started ticking and, and basically you can chart it out when Methuselah died, that's when the flood came. It's pretty interesting to see. So you have then this picture that Enoch is involved, right? Enoch is involved. But it says in the next passage, in, in, in next verse, it says in verse 22, it says that Enoch walked with God. Okay? After he'd fathered Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. But I want you to see that he walked with God. He walked with God. This is the testimony of Enoch and the person that he was. And there's a couple of things I want you to see. Because if you go on and take a look at the next verse, it says that he was, you know, he was taken up, right? He was taken up. But, but I don't want you to miss that he walked with God. What does it mean that he walked with God? You know, in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 11, it talks about the same concept, but there's several things I don't want you to miss when it's about talking about his testimony. So it says there, it says there that Enoch walked with God. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that he, I mean, pastors of old, preachers of old, whatever, they love to use the, you know, he was out walking with God one day, you know, and God said, hey, won't you come home with me? You're closer to my home than yours, you know, and it's a great fun statement. But when you're talking about walking with God, you're not talking about like out on a stroll with him. It's a metaphor that means that, that you're living for him. It's a lifestyle. You know, walking, somebody who's walked with God is not something you do once. It becomes who you are. Many times in the Bible, the word walk, you know, the life, you, you know, it has to do with the life you've lived, how you've walked. And so that's the concept. It was, he walked with God. So, you know, I don't know about you, but one day I, there'll be a memorial service and it'll be for me, right? I'll be gone. And, you know, just to be honest, if, if somebody stood up and said, you know, Jeff was a little strange and... Uh, you know, we could never figure him out or whatever. But one thing about him is he walked, he walked with God. I'd be fine with that. You can say whatever else you want to. I mean, we're all quirky, right? But when it comes down to it, did he, you know, he walked with God. That is the goal of a believer. In fact, we don't know much about Enoch. 
But what we do know about him is that he walked with God. You know, Hebrews passage, uh, Hebrews 11, take a look at verse 5. You know, when we talk about the Hebrews passage, guys, in, in chapter 11, it's what I call a hall, the hall of faith. It's the hall of fame for those in their faith. And, and it recounts, it's a wonderful, we talked about Cain and Abel the last time I was with you, but now it goes to Enoch and it shares a couple of verses on Enoch. Take a look at verse five. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up, right? Taken up. That's the, where we get the word rapture from. He was pulled. So if you want to kind of, let me jump ahead to you. So Enoch is a picture of someone who is taken up. So he is a fantastic parallel with, with the church. Now, when I say the word church, look at me. Everybody look at me. When I say the word church, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm not talking about denominations. The church, according to what the Bible says the church is. The church is people. Everybody, doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, or what denomination they're part of, the church are people who are believers, who put their faith and trust in Christ. They are called the bride of Christ in that metaphor, right? So we have then this picture that he was taken up. Enoch was taken up. So he's a picture of the church. So he was taken up so he should not see death. And he was not found, which means that Enoch didn't know he was going to be taken up. It was sudden, for those of you who have ears to hear. He didn't tell his family, hey, tomorrow, guys, I'm going to be taken up. No, he didn't know. But God, for those of you who have ears to hear, God's writing the story here. For those who want to know. And Enoch walked with God, but it says he was taken up, he wouldn't see death. And that there's going to be another group that are going to be like that. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a minute. All right, and he was not found because God had taken him. Catching away, taking away, that's what the word rapture is. So when somebody says the word rapture is not in the Bible, that's right. But its description is, all, is, is in all of these verses. But let's continue. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Walk with God, please God. Okay, now, I have been guilty of this. And anyone who's ever taught God's word at all has been guilty of this. It is so easy to quote verse 6. And usually you always quote verse 6 without referencing verse 5. Let's be honest, if you know anything about these verses. If you don't, this is probably better you see it this way, all right? So let's read verse 5 again and then run on into 6, all right? Verse 5 says this, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as someone who walked with God or who pleased God. Now, take a look at verse 6. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So this verse is about Enoch. It's not just a random statement on faith. It's about Enoch. Therefore, the way to please God is by learning to trust him. If you are a believer here today, there is a desire inside of you to please him. Right? If you have no desire to please God, then you're not his. Let's just be honest. I mean, I'm trying to be ugly, but that's what makes a believer a believer. Someone who longs to please the God who created you, right? 
And so it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So faith is mandatory if you want to please him. Forever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Look at this. And he rewards those who do what? Seek him. Aha. Uh-huh. The Bible has promised that if you seek him, you'll find him. And if you find him, you'll know him. And if you know him, you'll trust him. And then the process starts again until you could say that your life is walking with God. You just don't walk with God today and not tomorrow. Walking with God is a process. It's a long-term thing. So the greatest way that you can please God is learn to trust him. Interesting. Because that's what God longs for the most. You know, I remember in school, Mom Joseph would say, yeah, we just, this, this is classic. It's just classic immaturity, but it's interesting, right? He says, we want to do something great for God. Well, if we want to do something great for him, we'll, we'll trust him. And we'll learn to trust him. Because in reality, what, what can I do for God that's great anyway? In reality, he's going to have to do it through me. So it's whatever he chooses to do through me. And he gets all the glory for whatever I can do. So it's not so much what I can do for him is that those that please him are the ones who've learned to trust him. I find that incredible. So then how does a person learn to trust God? Well, over the long haul, this is not short-term stuff. You know, in our age and day, and I'm mainly talking to believers, we have almost a superstitious type mindset of who God is and how he works in our lives and in such a way to where we, you know, we pray, you know, and say, oh, God, you know, increase my faith. And there's almost this thought that God's somehow going to zap you with it. You know, and you go, oh, thank you, Lord. I trust you perfectly. No, 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 no. That's not how it happens. In fact, let me tell you this. When someone prays, God, increase my faith, it's a dangerous prayer. Because God just doesn't zap you with it. He puts you in situations that teach you to trust him. And they're usually not fun. Okay? When somebody freaks out, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just immature. But when someone freaks out and says, oh, God, I can't believe you let this happen to me. And they, oh, God, you should, you don't love me. That just shows someone who's immature in their faith. Why? Because those who have walked with God long enough to know, they learn they need to stop freaking out because God can be trusted. Let me give you an illustration. It's like the disciples in the boat. I love this. And they're, and they're out on the Sea of Galilee, right? And Jesus, and it was a fishing boat. So at that time, I've actually seen this boat. There's an underneath that is, there's a deck, and then there's a watertight underneath. So Jesus had gone down the bottom of the boat and fallen asleep. And all the rest of the disciples were on the boat, and, and, the, and there's a huge storm came up. And this storm had to have been really bad because a good chunk of those guys were fishermen. So if the storm was bad enough to scare them, it had to have been really been bad. And so this storm, they, they, they begin to freak out. I love that word freak out because everybody has this mental picture, you know, of your hair. All right. So it's a, it's, but that's what they were doing. And finally, their fear so overcame them 
that they went down to the bottom of the boat. They said, you know, Jesus, don't you care that we're all going to die? You know, because scared people never think rationally. Okay? Neither do people who doubt. And doubt and fear go hand in hand. So Jesus, you know, gets up and he goes on the boat and, you know, whoosh, you know peace be still and whatever it is. And it just, it just goes and... And they were, you know, I've got a vivid imagination, which got me in trouble when I was a kid. But I had this imagination of these Jewish fishermen with the beards. You know, they're hanging on for dear life, and, and they got water coming down their beards. It's just my imagination. But then Jesus looks back at them, and he makes a statement to them that I've never truly understood, but I think I do now. When he looks back at them and said, why did you doubt, oh, you of little faith? Now, he didn't say that he had no, they had no faith. He just said that their faith was immature. Well, wouldn't you be scared in a storm? Yeah, of course. But Jesus was in the boat with them. Right? The God who created everything was in the boat. And they can't even believe. Right? When a storm comes up. Well, it's just, it's just the shallow, not shallowness, but I don't want it to sound bad. It's the immaturity of their faith. It's so easy to blame God for things when in reality, he could have very much put you in that storm to teach you. Because after Jesus calmed the storm, they knew Jesus in a better way. And I think they learned to trust him a little bit more that when the next storm came up, they were probably still freaking out, but not near as bad. And then when you've been in enough storms, that is if you walk with God for long enough, when you've been in enough storms, when the next storm comes up, your heart rate doesn't even go up. Why? Because you've trusted him so long. You've walked with him. You've trusted him so long. You just—you can always tell somebody who's, a, who's been a believer for a while, who's followed God and walked with him for a while, they'll say things like, whew, this is tough, but Lord, I can't wait to see how you're going to get me out of this one. Why? Because they've just learned. You see, guys, Faith is not something, I'm going to try to trust you. No, no, no. Faith is knowing him, seeking him, knowing him, and then trusting him through what you know about him and the experiences that you go through. The one thing I love to use, this illustration I've used many times, but I'm going to use it again, is that, is that say that you and I were going to go to breakfast, all right? Thursday. Thursday at 7 o'clock in the morning. And so I show up and I... And and I'm there waiting on you when you get there. We have a great breakfast, and I pay for it, and you're happy, we're happy, all right? And I said, hey, I'll see you next Thursday. All right, next Thursday rolls around, all right? You show up, I'm already there waiting on you, right? We have breakfast, have a great time, I pay for it. Now, let's say 15, 20 weeks go by, and every Thursday, I'm always there waiting on you, and I always pay. I can tell you that through that experience, you will begin to trust me. That number one, I'm going to show up. And number two, you're going to even stop bringing your wallet. <laughs> right? Well, he always pays for it. Why? Because you've learned me. You've learned to trust me just in this little area. Insignificant. That's why, guys, that they're more than likely in a crowd this size, there are very few people in your life that you can trust. Because trust is, takes time. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a consistent thing that you see in somebody's life over time. If you have people in your life that you trust, 
They're probably very, very few. Why? Because we're all sinners. We all messed up. We all mess up. There are always times, times in our life that we're less trustworthy than other times. But there are some of us that are in, that you trust. Well, when you've walked with God long enough, you just learn to trust him. And I want you to know, I just want you to hear it, that you trusting him is what pleases him. Right? And so if you want to please him, then learn to trust him. Learn to trust him with who you are, with your life, with your resources, with your time, with your talents. And then you'll learn, you know, you'll learn to walk with him. So I just wanted to take just a few minutes to talk to you about the testimony of Enoch, because sometimes we miss that fact that that is the one thing that God wants from you the most. It's not what you can do or don't do for him, those type things. It, it's so much more the relationship that God longs for than anything else because it was the reason you were created. Oh, I'd love to spend. I could, I could have divided this little message up into two easy, but I wanted you to see the whole picture of this. Okay? Number three is what I'm going to call the translation of Enoch. So he walked with God, but one day God took him. We talked about him fathering Methuselah. And then you take a look at, you know, look, look on down at the other passages and the one in Hebrews. And it says that he, would, he walked with God and that one day God, God took him, right? God translated him out. Now, now, this is where I want you to, I want you to think about it. It says, Enoch walked with God and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, all right, now hang on. And, and see if you can't trek with me. So we're leading up to the flood. That is God's judgment. Okay, and you have this picture. You have this picture of Enoch who was delivered from the judgment. But then you have this picture of Noah who was delivered through it. So you have a difference, right? Don't miss next week. Next week's going to be a whole lot of fun when you put all this together, but you'll have needed to hurt today. So, so then Enoch represents the church and God's promises to deliver the church from the judgment to come. Because when you look in the book of Revelation, oh no, it's pretty amazing. Look at the book of Revelation. The church is not really mentioned. Now, I have to say it again, because I know that every time I say the word church, that some of you are thinking Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, whatever. That is not the biblical definition of church. The biblical definition of church are people who are believers. People. Not denominations, not organizations, but people. So therefore, everyone who ever lived and is living who is a true believer in Christ, no matter what they call themselves, they're part of a church. Christ calls it the, the bride, right? It says in the body that the church, that is you and I who are believers, are the bride of Christ in that metaphor. It also teaches in the book of Revelation that there will be, there, at the beginning, that there will be a marriage supper that is a feast in celebration of the, of the bride 
and Christ, right? The church in Christ. And so, so there's this picture then, then in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, if you notice, the church is not really mentioned other than the very beginning. The rest of it's all about Israel. If you've ever read it, if you've never read it, it can be confusing. But there are the 144,000, right? And, and all the Jewish stuff in there. So if Enoch represents the church, then Noah represents the Jewish people that God will deliver through the tribulation. It's pretty incredible for those of you who have ears to hear. Okay? For those of you who have ears to hear. That's what makes the Bible such an incredible book. Because you have over several thousand years, over 40 different authors written in three different languages, and yet it all points, it all points to the same thing. How is that even possible? But anyway, so you have then Enoch is a great picture of the translation. Therefore, he was taken uh, and, and he was not found. It was sudden. It was a thief in the night kind of a thing. If you look at the book of Revelation, there's no way to hide that one. There's no thief in the night when at the second coming. You've had bowls of wrath. You've had, you've had armies where, you know, you've had incredible wars. You've had all that in the book of Revelation. You've ever read it. And so you have then this incredible picture then of the two. Now, here's how I'd like to close. Is number four is what the truth that's found in Enoch's life. So then, Jeff, if, if Enoch's like life represents that, and we already know because, you know, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be again in the days of the Son of Man. So there's this comparison of these two judgments, right? One by a flood, one by a fire. And, and that's what the book of Revelation is. And so much of it is symbolic. And I don't encourage you unless you want to take the time to truly seek and study it. I don't encourage you just to go casually read Revelation. It'll just confuse you. Unless you're, unless you're pretty well versed with it. Because it, it really is a, an amazing thing. And so much of it is symbolic. But then so much of it is, it is just, it's just what it is. But so, the, so Jesus has already made the comparison between Noah and the flood and, and who he is and the eventual, the fire part, the judgment part. So when you take a look at these two, but isn't it interesting that in our culture, none of us, none of us doubts that this world can be destroyed by fire. Just look at the technology that exists now and the things that are in the news today, every day. You only have to set off one and there's enough to incinerate the whole planet. You know that. We all know that. That's why you can kind of sit on the edge of a knife. And if you didn't have faith in God, you should be freaking out, right? If God didn't already tell you what it's going to be, right? Anyway, well, that's another message for another time. So, but let's talk about this rapture thing. That is, what does Enoch, and why? And again, some of you would ask, well, then why does God take Enoch out? Why didn't he just put him on the boat? I, when you get to heaven, ask God one day. I have no idea why he does the things that he does, right? I don't know. I, I mean, you can ask, well, why would God do it? That? Because he wanted to. I, it's the only thing I know. Because people ask me those questions as if I'm going to know God, you know, the motivation. I have no idea. But it was definitely a picture, and it is going to happen again. In fact, there's a passage of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is really neat. This is the passage that describes this event, okay? The rapture, left behind series, that type of thing. 
And it's described here, Paul describes it. And it's such a neat translation, translating, okay, like Enoch was translated, right? And he goes on in chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, but we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brothers. What's he saying? Well, there have been some bad teaching that, you know, that, that the rapture had already happened, you know, or that, you know, that everybody who's dead is lost, you know. And Paul was wanting to reassure them uh, about some truth in the scriptures. And this is the way Paul put it. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. You see the word asleep. Uh, Paul used it often, but the New Testament used it quite a bit when it referred to those who are believers who, are, who have died. They're, they're called asleep, right? Asleep, which is a great analogy, right? It says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you don't have to grieve as others grieve who don't have any hope. I use, I many times use these verses at memorial services when I know that the person was a believer. Because guys, we really, we don't have to grieve like everybody else grieves who don't have any hope. It's a total loss. That's a tough way to grieve. In fact, one day, I think we get, we get to heaven one day, I think one thing is, is that we will say to ourselves, gosh, why in the world did we grieve the way we did when, when we've now found out what we're, what, where we are now, you know? Why would I have grieved when you left? You know, and that's why you'll hear at a memorial service sometimes you'll say, you know, if they could come back, they wouldn't. Yeah, if they're believers, if they had the chance to come back, they wouldn't. Now, they want you to come their way. But they have no desire. I mean, when you understand that piece, you don't have to grieve like others grieve. Doesn't mean you don't grieve, because there is a loss, but it is not a total loss. It's interesting. For since then, we believe that Christ, Jesus died and rose again, right? Uh, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. That is, believers who have died. No. For, we, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until his coming, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay? For the Lord himself, Christ, will descend from heaven with the cry of a command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's very picturesque in your mind if you're hearing it. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So that will happen first. And then we who are alive and left will be caught up, taken up. Same concept as Enoch, not see death. And so you have then this pretty cool parallel of what this looks like. With him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with him forevermore, always. So that's where eternity, the whole John 3.16 all right? For God so love, right? Will not perish, but have everlasting life there, so, so we'll always be with it. Therefore, verse 18, therefore, scare one another with these words. Oh, wait a minute. But most of the time, this passage you've ever heard taught or preached, it's always been scary. But remember, that's not why Paul wrote it. 
He wrote it for you to be encouraged, right? Because you don't have to fear death. You have promises. And when you've walked with him long enough, you won't fear death. Why? Because you already know the promises he's made. And he's come through in every other promise he's made. Why wouldn't he come through on that one? That's why the older somebody is, they really don't fear this life. They don't live in fear. Someone who walks with the Lord doesn't have near the problem with fear. You still have it, but it's just, it's just you've learned to trust him. Perfect love casts out fear. It's just, it begins to all make sense when you see it, but it is pretty, it's pretty exciting to think about. Then it goes on in chapter 5. You can read the rest of it, talking about the concerns, the times, the season. No one knows the time. So when you hear these people that say, well, I know when he's coming again. The clock's ticking, but you don't know. Well, I think I know when. No, you don't. No, you don't. In fact, I think, now, I, it just, it just sometimes people come to me and say, well, you know, I think Jesus is going to come again. Whenever. I'm like, you're clueless. I mean, I don't tell you out loud. <laughs> right? Because the Bible's already said you don't know. And so I think it's fruitless to guess and to get caught up in all of that. Anyway, that's another message. All right. Therefore, encourage one another these words. So then as I close today, there's these parallels. So next week, I can't tell you how cool it is. When you take a look at the ark and, and the picture of who Christ is with the ark, you're going to see some really cool things next week. You know, I kicked myself for not doing Genesis long ago because it's so foundational and there's so much to be seen. And for those of you who have ears to hear and want to know, there's so much to grow and to, and to please God by learning to trust him more as you see his words, as you see it unfold in front of you. But as I, as I close, the great question, um, oh, I see that verse I got a couple of minutes. Let me share it with you. Put Jude 14. I didn't share this with the other crowds because I ran out of time. Look at Jude 14. Jude is a very obscure book that nobody reads, right? And when they do read it, they don't understand most of it. But there is one little, we, we used it last time, but there's one little verse here. It says, look at this, but I find it incredible uh, that it, it mentions end times kind of things. Look at this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. That is, God gave him a word to say, and he talks about the Lord returning with 10,000 of his holy ones. And so, could it be here, because it's a little obscure, could it be here that Enoch had an idea of what he symbolized? I don't know, but it's pretty cool to think about, for those of you who have ears to hear. As I close. Sorry about that. I can do a whole message there. We'll just stay. All right, we'll just stay. All right, here we go. Let me close. Let me close. Number one, if you're not a believer today, I want you to hear this. This has nothing to do with denominations or this or that. It has to do with his truth. It has to do with who Christ is, what he came to do. And he becomes the ark, right, of this new look, of what the ark in the flood represented now. And if there's never been a time in your life you put your faith and trust in him, this is not about jumping through hoops or doing religious things. It's about message that God's given you. If you want to know what it means, the great question is, are you prepared? Are you prepared for his coming? Because it's going to come as sure as, sure as, you, as, you, as you can imagine. It's, going to, it's a surety. It's not a, it's not a hope so, maybe so. It's a surety. The scriptures have talked about it. 
But the question is, are you prepared? I'm not talking about if you're religious. I'm not talking about if you try to be a good person. I'm really talking about, has there ever been a time you've understood and you walk with him? You may still be immature in your faith, but you do have a faith. If you're not sure of those things, then there will always be people down here afterwards. There's some booklets that out under the got questions you can grab and take on your way home. But if you're a believer here today, I want you to walk out encouraged. Because sometimes we can allow the situation that God puts us in, the storms, to discourage us as if he either doesn't love us or he's forgotten about us. In reality, he's just teaching you to trust him. He is trustworthy. There's, been, there's a lot of people in this room that have walked with him a lot longer than I have, but I've walked with him now lots of years. And I'm telling you, not only is he trustworthy, but it's an incredible thing to rest in the fact that you know him and that you can walk with him. Pretty neat, pretty neat stuff. So encourage yourself with that as you walk out today. All right, God bless you. Let's all stand. We'll have a closing word of prayer.